give me one shot here on a blue chip stock, believe me, Kevin, the only problem you're going to have is that you didn't buy more. Nobody knows if the stock is going to go up, down, sideways, or in circles. What's going on, NBA draft fans? Your boys are back. The Wolves of Ball Street, your favorite draft analyst, favorite draft analyst. The Draft Deck NBA Draft Podcast. My name is Corey Tulliba. And unfortunately, I'm not here, as always, with my co-host, Albert Garbage Time Gim. Uh, Albert had a last-minute uh, issue come up. So this is why we have a deep bench over at No Ceilings. We have the Tom Thibodeau mentality. Next man up. I got my guy. You might know him from the Draft Deeper podcast. We have Nathan Grubel in the building. Nathan, what is good, dude? Always have to be ready to pinch hit over here at No Ceilings. But luckily, as you said, we do have plenty of guys who are always ready to contribute. I am that next man up. I'm I'm ready to, to help out a star tonight. You guys are, man, you guys are pumping out, I swear, like, what, two or three podcasts a week now? You guys have been absolutely killing it. So got to keep the momentum going. Look, man, the, the No Ceilings podcast network has been just <laughs> – on a tear and uh albert and i were like yo we gotta we gotta step our game up right now the 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 squad is on a tear we and we've all as a collective have been absolutely crushing it um but yeah i'm on podcast like seven thousand in the last three days how many how many other platforms have three shows that are ranking as high as ours like come on we're on we're on a tear man we are on a tear and uh i think we're gonna have some really fun stuff in the future that is it's only the beginning, um, but bef- you know we'll we'll toot the the no ceilings horn and you know at later parts <laughs> of the podcast we're here to uh, have a discussion about a player who seemingly is just gonna go number three in the draft. That's the general feeling. So we got to talk it out. We have to break it down. We have to ask if we're overthinking um, this six foot ten inch two hundred and fifty pound with a reported seven foot wingspan who can have a ball on a string, uh, 19-year-old from Duke. We're talking about Paolo Boncaro. Uh, recently, there are reports that he's 6'10 and a half without shoes, possibly. Good, good Lord. I good mean, Lord. you know, these are just reports. We don't know for sure, right? But there are reports. Uh, Mr. Boncaro put up 17.2 points per game this year, 7.8 rebounds per game, 3.2 assists per game to 2.6 turnovers, 1.1 steals, one block, on 47.8% shooting, 33.8% from the three-point line, 72.9% from the free throw line, 55.7% true shooting, PER of 24.2. Boncaro is a a guy who's been on the radar for a while. So this is somebody that, you know, we wanted to save towards the end of the draft cycle uh, to really make sure that we had a feel for for what was going to happen with him potentially at the beginning of the year. Um, ESPN had him at two SB nation shout out to our guy, Ricky O'Donnell had him at one bleacher report had him at two basketball news, had him at two tankathon had him at one. There was an average stock price of 1.6. He came in at number two on the draft deck IPO. Currently ESPN has him at three. The athletic has him at three tankathon has him at three basketball news has him at three. But here's how it get where it gets interesting. Bleacher Report has him at one. The Ringer has him at one. SB Nation has him at one. Sports Illustrated has him at two. 
and no ceilings has him at two. So it's an average price of 2.1. Okay. So uh, his stock dropped by a half a point um, through the course of the season, which probably had more to do with the fact of other players rising rather than Paulo quote unquote dropping because um, you know, there's really no drop. He pretty much stayed exactly where he came in. There's just more outlets who ranked him, but there is a number of outlets that has him at three, but recently a lot of people have gotten back on the Paulo Boncaro hype train and have moved him as one of the top two prospects. Um, so let's talk about it. Nathan is Paulo Boncaro stock price too high, too low, or is it just right at 2.1? It's just right. It's just right. Because we round down. We, we, we are good at math here at No Ceiling, so we round down. We get the two. I have him at two on my personal big board. I think you do I as do. well, Corey. So I would say it's just right. I think that switch happened. It really did happen in, during the NCAA tournament, right? Mm-hmm. Like the ACC tournament, but really when Paolo was able to help carry that Duke team to the Final Four, I think that's when a lot of people were looking at this like, are we overthinking it? Are we overthinking Regardless of some of the defensive concerns, we overthink in the six foot ten guy, as you mentioned, who can just put the ball in the basket from virtually anywhere on the floor, who could be an offensive engine, who is the one guy out of the top three who we'd all probably say has the best chance to be a number one option on an NBA team. Are we overthinking not having him as high as we do? You and I both have Chet Holmgren at number one. I think that's the right choice because of all of the other things he brings to the table. But if you're a team that just needs a number one offensive guy, if that's what you need, why wouldn't you consider Paolo Bencaro with one of your top picks? And honestly, because of how the draft fell, Corey, I would be much more comfortable taking Paolo Bencaro at number one if I were the Orlando Magic, which is a very interesting wrinkle we can add into this. I know that's higher than the stock price. I'll say it's just right, but there are – there are many different ways Orlando can go with that number one pick. I actually think it should be Paolo. Very interesting. So even though Chet Holmgren is your number one player, you think it should be Paolo. So that's going to – all right. Well, you know, the next segment on the show is typically, if you had $10 to invest in Paolo Boncaro, Chet Holmgren, Jabari Smith, how would you spend your money? But I'm going to switch it up. If you're the Orlando Magic and you had $10 oh. to invest in these three prospects – how would you spend that $10? Because it seems like you would give the most to Paulo for the Orlando Magic. I would I would go $4, $4 to Paolo Bencaro, and then I would go $3 a piece to Chet Holmgren and Jabari Smith because mm-hmm. I think that it's a very close race. What this team needs, though, they, they need a true number one offensive option for as much as – we could talk about Chet Holmgren's game, and we could break that down, and we could talk about his fit. It's not that he wouldn't be a bad fit with Orlando. I just think that what Paolo brings to the table is exactly what they, – they don't have another player like him, Corey. They don't have another guy at his size who can get his own shot whenever he needs to. And Chet, the Chet Franz, has tr- the, the Franz truthers are coming for you, Nathan. <laughs> not not in the same ways as Paolo Bencaro, brother. Agreed. And, Agreed. You and I would agree on that front. And then when you add in all the passing that can come from that, the developing pick and roll playmaking, which I think you and I would agree is probably there. He just didn't get to show it in that archaic Duke offense that I'm sure you have plenty of words about throughout the course of this podcast. But they, they well, we, have another... we have a we have a Duke assistant coach following us now, so I might have to temper. <laughs> <laughs> you got you got you got to tame that down a little bit. But 
e- either way, yeah, Orlando, what, what do you think? What, who, where do you think Orlando should go with the number one overall pick? I think they should go Chet. I think it's as simple as I think Chet okay. has the most potential of anyone in the draft. I feel the, the most strongly that he is going to be the biggest impact player in the draft. I have the most uh, faith that he is going to maximize his potential. I, I feel likewise, very similarly for Jabbar, has whatever potential he has as well. I think he has a similar tenacity and work ethic to him. I just feel like Chet uh, has a more well-rounded package with more elite tools. Um, so for me, I think Chet, like, but I get it because when I look at like the Chet versus Paulo debate, because to, to me, those are the two guys that they should be focused on. I, I'm, yeah. I, I really like Jabari Smith as a prospect, uh, but I would consider Paulo and Chet pretty primarily We're if I was Orlando. Yep. Um, now the, the case for taking Chet is that he might not have that number one cog of an offense type potential offensively but he most certainly does defensively. And when you look at the impact that Rudy Gobert has had year in, year out, just defensively, that automatically gives you, you know, the chance to be a top probably four team in your conference. And you need other supplementary players around you to, to handle the offense. But I think Chet, and I think you'd agree, is a significantly better offensive prospect than Rudy Gobert is. So you're talking about somebody who I believe has the Rudy Gobert defensive number one potential impact along with the fact that this is a guy who could probably get to 20 points himself in the league one day. There's um, a caveat to that, though. Sure. There's a small caveat in that if if you're buying into the offensive upside that you and I both think is there for Chet, at the end of the day, he's, that upside is still going to be realized best when he has guards who can get him the ball in the right spots. Oh, I, I'm 100% with you, right? Uh, and, and that's something that I think this Orlando – for the Orlando guards, to me, you can get rid of all of them except for Jalen Suggs. Like, uh, I love Markel Fultz. I'm impartial to Cole Anthony because I think he has a role on a very specific team somewhere at some point. Um, Never really been a big RJ Hampton guy, so I don't really consider him in the mix at all. Uh, But I think that will be easier to find than, than than what Chet offers. And when I think of, you can, and I'm not, Jonathan Isaac is, I guess, going to still be on his book tour when the NBA season starts. I don't know. Like, (laughs) I don't, he, but he, when I think of Chet, Wendell Carter and Franz Wagner in the front court defensively. And I think of like the overwhelming size and how hard it would be to score on that trio of players. And they all can play together and it all fits. That's really intriguing. Now, the case for Paolo is that I agree. He has the most clear-cut chance to be the number one player. And I could look at Paolo Boncaro and Franz Wagner on the wings playing together where Franz doesn't have the pressure to be that number one guy. Right. And he could be your secondary supplementary scorer at 6'10 who could pass and shoot and is going to space the floor. And Paolo's 6'10 and one day you could envision him doing a lot of the same Jason Tatum things. That's really intriguing too. And Paulo's yeah. a good passer. So you got two six ten plus pass it like playmaking passers. I think the trend now, you don't have to be a, like you don't have to have a point guard in the NBA anymore. Like a true, like walk the ball up the court. Now when you uh, have Mr. Bancaro, get your team into the offense. That's not like how many of those guys exist. Chris Paul, 
uh who else like who's the 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 impactful point guard they're just few and far between right you're you're able to get away with having a guy like Derek white or Lonzo ball just like these guys who are more like three and like three Marcus and smart guys. for the Boston Celtics right Marcus smart uh, another guy like you can get away with that right and unless you're a, otherwise you're looking at you know the the dame the Steph the Trey young guys who could bomb from distance. But you don't have to have that. You know, you you can get away with just having these supplementary guys if you have enough playmaking from other spots. And I think if you put Paulo and Franz together, you would get that. And then I think yeah. I actually think Markel Fultz in that situation is a pretty good fit because he's got the size. He has a lot of those other tools where like, all right, now he's like the fourth option and he can kind of create and, and penetrate and get to the spots in the mid-range. Eventually, they're going to need definite floor spacers i think like because i'm not confident in that trio of uh of players like hitting efficiently in tight playoff games from behind the arc and i think you need guys who are going to get their shot in volume from the three-point line but we can worry about that after as we build well, the team there, there's also the angle of with faults like if you're playing him off the ball you probably want another really good passer or two to be able to get him the ball when he's cutting right and he yeah. is an athletic guard who can get downhill who can cut that's not something Paolo's Paolo really had to work with at Duke AJ Griffin notwithstanding when they when they finally got AJ involved in the offense in the second half of the year but other than him they didn't have another guard who could cut and make things happen on the move like Markel Fultz could so that'd be another interesting wrinkle in the offense and Jalen Suggs as well I think James Jalen Suggs Suggs. Is yep. very similarly. Um, and uh, eventually, like, you know, that's tough. Suggs, Fultz, Paulo, Franz, and even Wendell, who's, you know, showed he could space it. All the defense to take up, to make up for any of the warts that we could talk about with Paolo. Although I don't think Paolo's going to be a bad defender. I wouldn't call him a great defender. And I don't yeah, think we'll, he's going to be a great defender. But we'll, we'll get into that. Let's, uh, let's get into the scouting report. And let's just start with the shooting. Let's get the, the shooting out of the way, because I think we could talk about different areas of shooting and you would feel differently based on what specific aspect of shooting we are talking about. Uh, but let's start with the positives. So let's talk about the mid-range game and its self-creation ability. Uh, how many prospects do you think have come through the NBA draft in the last five years that are as polished in the mid-range as Paulo Boncaro? I don't need an exact number, just, you know, like a roundabout guesstimate. Not, not not enough when we start really breaking down what that looks like as far as the elbow touches, the mid post. Like, really, you go back to I – mean, we're putting them in a conversation with guys like Jason Tatum. And how many Jason Tatums have we seen, like, walking through the draft? Like, those types of wings are so valuable because they're as rare as they are. So that answer is probably five or less if we're going to try to put a number on it. And that's that's why we have to another reason why we have to value Paolo so high up in the draft. And especially talking the mid range, it's like when you look at the top prospects in some of the drafts past, like even go Luca, Trey, Anthony Edwards, Jalen Green, like not many of them are these mid range savants, they're not, right? They're, they're, they're not. A lot of them they're like they're like one and a half or two level scores, right? Like they're get to the rim or they're like volume three point shooters. But right. Like Jalen Green, Anthony Edwards we're talking about they need to improve in the mid range. That's where Paolo makes a lot of his money. Yeah. And as we see, like that's a really important shot in tight playoff games. You sometimes you just need a bucket. It doesn't matter where it's come from. And for a guy like, you know, 
not that Paulo compares to Jimmy Butler at all, but like Jimmy Butler is like getting to the rim or he's knocking down mid range shots. And because he's just a physical dominant force who wants to impose his will, he could still get to 40 points just by being a scorer at two levels, yep. you know? So the mid range stuff, the footwork, the, like the hezy pull up, like it's really, really impressive. And it's so easy to see how it translates. And that's the thing with Paulo, everything. It's so easy to see how it translates. There's no wondering how is this going to work at the next level? Because his game just looks like it was tailor made to be played at the next level at his size. But I, I I'm the mid range thing is like how many guys in this draft have something they can fall back on like outside of the top three or four guys we like a lot of these players but they don't necessarily have like the thing that they could fall back on at an nba level paulo has that with the mid-range shot where he doesn't where the inconsistencies come with the shooting is a three-point shot are where do you tend to lean um, for the three-point shot. Are you optimistic about it? Are you? Do you think he's just going to kind of be blah? Do you think he's going to be poor? Where, where are you at? I think he's going to be fine. And and to, to really hit this point home, I wanted to ask you a question about the three-point shooting. Do, if Even if he doesn't get the off-the-dribble three-point stuff, right, if he's pretty much exclusively like a catch-and-shoot guy, does that even matter that he doesn't have that in his bag? Like, I don't want him being a high-volume three-point shooter anyways because that's that's where I know he doesn't do the most damage. I want him getting downhill as often as possible. I want him getting those post touches as often as possible. I want him to get those elbow touches, those mid-post touches as often as possible. I don't want him living behind the arc anyways. So if he can take two to three triples a game where they're, they're catch-and-shoot shots, they're enough to keep the defense honest, to pull defenders out to him so that he can get downhill and take advantage of everything else he does better – that's all I really want from him anyway. So like, I don't need him to be the superstar all world shooter. If he can be 34, 35% from three point range on, you know, three to four attempts per game. Like that's all I really want from him anyways. Do you think it needs to be more than that? No. And okay, uh, there we go. I, basically what he needs to do is if, cause I envision him more as like a guy who's going to play with the ball in his hands than a yep. guy who's going to be like setting screens. Like a, a lot of time he wasn't Duke. So to me, it's like, are you going to punish the defense when they go under? Is it enough that they're just like, they can't give you the Ben Simmons treatment and just be like, be our guest, like, let it fly, bro. Like, and I don't think he, like, I think he's a good enough shooter that if you do that, he's going to start not only like knocking him down, but I think like it could get him going. You know, we've seen him in multiple games get hot, like that Gonzaga game, you know, running into transition threes, like, you know, We've seen him dating back to high school, hit these really impressive step back looks. Uh, sometimes it feels like a little kid who's trying to like hoist the ball from too far away when he's shooting, where like he gets a little bit inconsistent in his form and it, it just feels like it gets there enough, even when it goes in. So I, I do think that like adjusting maybe to the three point line, there could be an issue, but who knows? He's, you know, working with the, the let it fly crew in, uh, in Memphis and Mike Miller. So maybe, maybe Mike Miller's getting him right down there. But I think that he's going to be just adequate enough that it's not going to tempt him to fall in love with the three-point shot yeah. and just good enough to have, you know, be able to, to punish teams that don't believe that he's a good enough shooter. Now, when we talk about, like, is that going to be good enough later in the playoffs and the conference finals and the finals? Who knows? But if you're a guy who you could start having those conversations about, that's pretty good, and that's something that I think is workable. 
Um, what do you think about his ability to handle the ball as a primary guy at the next level? Do you think that that's something that he should be eased into? Like if he goes to Houston as is presumed, Jalen Green is presumably going to be the the number one high usage guy there. Do you think that he's going to be able to take over for Jalen Green at some point? And he eventually is the number one guy and Jalen Green's the number two guy? Or do you think he, like, playing off of a number one is better for him? I think playing off of other guys early in his career is probably best for him. But eventually, he'd probably get to a point. I don't know if he'd take over, like, outright as the number one guy. I think he's going to get to a point, though, where you want him splitting ball handling duties with something with somebody else. Like, it's more of, like, a 50-50 split. Hmm. And keep in mind, like, they'll still have Kevin Porter Jr. there as well. So there well, will be... I'm- I mean, maybe early in his career. Yes. Yes. Early in his career. (laughs) All right. So we're, we're, we're out on the, the, the scoot experiment. That's fine. All right. And anyways, but yeah, they, you, we saw even towards the end of the year, they, they were funneling Jalen green, a lot more pick and roll opportunities. They want him to get those reps and develop in that area. And I think he will. So even if it's to the point where he's splitting duties with Jalen green, we talk about two really electric explosive number one options who, you know, they can better complement each other. They can run some two-man games and highlight. Like, there's going to be a lot there to work with. And the interesting part about putting the ball in Paolo's hands more if he goes to Houston, that him, him and Alper and Schengen is going to be one fun duo on offense, right? That's the kind of high-level yeah. duo that you can picture where that ball is just getting flung all over the court. And Jalen Green being an off-ball guard as well, not just giving him a lot of on-ball responsibilities – I've had conversations with other plenty of other Houston fans where they're like, watch the off ball tape with Jalen Green last year when he did get opportunities to free himself up and get to the basket. He took advantage of those. And I think him living off the, the passing that both Paolo and Alperin will be able to provide, that's going to do him wonders as well and take a little bit of pressure off him. So I, I think the 50-50 split's probably the answer you're looking for for me. I nobody I loves Alperin Shangoon like I loved Alperin Shangoon in the draft. Maybe John Hollinger. Um, but and, and I agree when we're talking about Jalen and his cutting. And that's why I was so excited that the Rockets had landed uh, Shangun. like going back to his high school tape, his FIBA stuff. Like that's one of the reasons I was so high on Jalen. Cause I was like, yes, you want the ball in his hands, but like he was perfectly content on that FIBA team playing off of Cade and Tyrese Halliburton and you know, the immense amount of talent that was playing with the ball in their hands in that tournament. Like he was cool. Like playing on the wing, doing the little stuff, catch and yeah. shoot, cutting. Um, and I think that having two guys who could pass like Shengun and Paolo would be really good for Jalen's game as well. Now, defensively, the Paolo and Shengun uh, front court is not something I love. Uh, I think that much like I believe they will end up moving off of Kevin Porter Jr., uh, I believe that they will ultimately end up moving off of Shengun. Uh, I don't know if they'll tr- how long the experiment will last. It could last two years. Maybe it'll last a half a year. I don't know. But I believe that um, eventually it will happen. And I think when you bring in a player like Paolo, like, you do what you can to build the roster the right way. You want to build it around Jalen and Paolo the way it makes the most amount of sense. And if it doesn't make sense to have Shangun there in the front court with him because, you know, those are two guys who are not going to be able to ultimately protect the rim as well as you want, defend the perimeter as well as you want consistently enough. 
that's fine. You can get value. Shengun's yeah. going to have value around the league. And it's okay to trade guys for a better fit. It doesn't mean you're giving up on them. It just means you're trying to construct your team in a way that better serves your organization. Let's talk about the post stuff. Because much like the mid-range stuff, wow, some advanced footwork there. Yep. I mean, uh, again, I had like, imagine the post the post footwork between Shengun and Paolo, like the clinic that these guys would have to work off of. I know that you, you don't want them operating in the post together at the same time, but with the, the high-low passing ability of both of them, uh, what a handful that would be. Yeah, and there's there's really there's really not much you can do to stop Paolo in a one-on-one post-up situation. You kind of have to bring help, and then when you try and bring help on that, I mean, he's he's not one of those guys where he's going to turn the ball over a bunch of times in those situations like my man Joel Embiid in Philadelphia. Paolo can actually pass out of the double team. So it really puts defenses in a tough bind. And then when you, when you talk about the footwork, I mean, his advanced footwork for somebody his age – it's not, it's not something we see from a guy who is perfectly content, as content as he is facing up and going to those violent spin moves that I still remember you talking about. You saw him at the Garden very early in the season. He whipped out that first spin move getting downhill on somebody. You, you put yourself in a position where you have to think about defending that, but then you have to think about what happens when he actually backs himself down. It goes over either shoulder and is looking to score, or he goes to that fadeaway out of the post that he's also very comfortable getting to. He is just such a tough man to guard one-on-one. Like, I think you kind of have to picture double-teaming him or trying to get the ball out of his hands like that, no matter how you're trying to defend him. I think that's how you have to go about it, and that's those are the types of guys that NBA teams are looking for. When you have when you command so much attention, you have to bring multiple defenders over to you, but then you have the passing ability to redirect and get it to where it needs to go. That's why I think they would go to him in the post more than anything, not just for the one-on-one scoring, but the fact that that it forces help to come over to him. Yeah. I mean, obviously like Jokic is the, you know, gold star example of what, you know, post gravity does for, for your team as far as playmaking. Like it's as you can give a guy, a guy who can pass from the block is as good as any drive and kick opportunity because it, if you could just go to work and feast and get high percentage looks and score almost every time you're down there, uh, you have to send a double. And cause you're going to live with the fact that somebody else is going to beat you. And what I love about Paulo, and, and this is where, again, you start seeing a little bit of like the Carmelo Anthony stuff. His second jump on offensive rebounds down there is so quick. And yeah. it, it really is reminiscent of Melo and his prime that even when you do force him into a miss, he's so big and such an instinctual leaper. And, you know, there's a lot of people who say his athleticism is subpar. And I, I get that he's not like, um, you know, the he's not Jaden Ivey athletically right. by any means. But also, he's a good, I think he's a good athlete. He's a good functional basketball athlete. And he's got such an instinctual quick leaper off that second jump that he's just going to get a ton of offensive rebound put back. So it's another reason that you really have to crowd that area on him because if yeah. it's just him versus one other guy going for that board, it's probably going to end up being Paolo who gets it. <laughs> that that's sort of like a pivot. I don't know when you wanted to talk about some of the athletic stuff, but like that's sort of a perfect pivot into this whole narrative that Paolo Bencaro is a bad athlete that that needs to die, man. Like I, I really don't think he's that bad of an athlete on either side of the ball. And 
I think some of the defensive stuff that I know that I don't know if you want to get into that now or later, but like it comes back to people thinking that he's slow, but I don't, I really don't think he's slow. I think a lot of what we see, some of the deficiencies come from more bad habits that need to be coached out of him versus he has really that slow of feet or he's that slow to react. Like you talk about some of the second jump stuff on some of those offensive rebound opportunities. I love when you shared that clip the other day, that comparison clip between him and Mello. Like that's what that reminds you of. I love that because that's a sign that he's not, if he was really that bad of an athlete, he wouldn't be that quick to get up off the ground. Right. Just because he's not jumping the highest doesn't mean he doesn't have the timing and sort of the intellectual component to it to where his anticipation, his awareness to actually get to those spots and get up when he does. Like to me, th- there's that part of athleticism that I don't think is talked about enough with him just because he's not jumping the highest or, you know, running the quickest. That doesn't mean he's a bad athlete. A hundred percent. Like there there's functional basketball athleticism and then there's run and jump athleticism. And like, yep. I will take the functional basketball player. And again, and now look at the players that are having the most success in the NBA these days. It's not, you know, out, out of this world, jump out of the gym athletes. It's guys who have feel, skill, size, versatility. And Paulo does have that in spades, you know, and, and we'll yeah. talk about the defense in a little bit, but this kind of goes into it. For me, where my concerns lie with Paolo, it's uh, a little bit of the shot selection. And it's not that I think he's Chucky or anything, because I don't think he's like shooting bad shots, but I think he settles. And I think he settles on both ends. So, yep. and, and this is something that I was concerned with dating back to his high school tape is that, especially in high school, because he's bigger than most players at the division one level in like one of the best conferences in college basketball, arguably the best. He was way bigger than everybody in high school. And he had no issues just settling for, you know, step back jumpers. So, like the shots might not necessarily be bad. They maybe they don't have, you know, uh, he's not draped with defenders over him while he's taking them, but it's like, bro, get to the hoop. Like just you're too big, you're too strong, nobody's stopping you. So that's kind of where my issues with him lie on on both ends. Offensively, it's like I don't want to see a ton of the step backs. I want to see them mixed in because I think you need to keep defenses on their toes. If you were just a predictable guy who could only get downhill, that's not good. You got to be able to mix it up and make teams pay and make them guess while they're guarding you. But is he going to settle? So do you think that's something that can be coached out of him? Or is that something that we're, you know, teams are going to have to live with because it's really hard to coach that out of him historically. I, I don't know if it's something that gets coached out of you. I think it's it's just going to have to cut, get to a point where he just flips that mental switch himself. And we've seen that that's, that's how the best wing scores in the NBA learn how to manufacture their points more efficiently. It's when they actually get downhill, get to the line much more frequently, and then they're adding those points per game from the free throw line. Like 4.8 free throw attempts last year per game at Duke. Those are rookie numbers, man, for somebody like him. You see, <laughs> as you would like to say, he's got to pump those numbers up. Yeah, Like there is no one, there are very few players in the NBA who are actually going to be able to check him one-on-one. So when you factor in his size, his strength, once he actually does get downhill to push people off of him, plus the ball handling ability, which we didn't necessarily talk about the handle yet, but like, no, we didn't. I'm not, I'm not going to say it's Ben Simmons level handle for somebody of that size, but it's not, it's really not that far off. I don't think it's that far off at all. He's a, he's an A plus ball handler. It's certainly for his size, he's going to come in and be one of the best ball handlers, if not the best. 
at, at, at his size in the NBA. So like you throw in all of those things just because he's not the quickest to get to that first step when he wants to go somewhere, how many guys are actually going to prevent him from a strength standpoint to getting to those spots. So that's why I agree with you. That is to me, that was the biggest thing coming in that we talked about preseason that we wanted to see more of. I think the second half of the year, and especially in the NCAA tournament, we saw a guy who was much more comfortable living closer to the basket than further from it, other than the catch and shoot looks, which he was a lot more confident taking those as well. It's going to be, he's going to have to flip that mental switch himself. And it's probably going to take time to do so. But once we see Paolo in like year four, year five, he could be a completely different player from a mindset standpoint. And He's one of these guys we can look up. He's averaging 27, 28 points per game doing the things that we talked about. And that's why those guys are a lot harder to find at that size than some of the other pieces that we could talk about in this draft. Yeah, he could. There's a world, there's a, you know, a multiverse where he is kind of what you wanted out of Ben Simmons to be, where he's like the aggressive offensive small ball four five, who is just consistently getting downhill is able to make plays. Maybe isn't as you know, uh, willing a passer, but certainly a still a willing passer as Ben, uh, you know, as Ben is, but more of the offense score first mentality, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Like, you know, for years, all anybody wanted is maybe can we see Ben Simmons try to play the Giannis role as a five. Now Giannis, a lot of it has to do with that mentality. Like he always wants to get downhill. So yeah. uh, it remains to be seen. Like you said, like, you would have loved to at least seen him hit like the six, six and a half free throw attempt threshold, I think. Um, but, you know, it, contextually, it was a packed paint. Mark Williams is always down low. Uh, that's hard. Trevor Keels is not a floor spacer. You know, AJ Griffin and uh, Wendell Moore, I think, were good floor spacers. Obviously, AJ is an elite floor spacer, but two guys out of the five on the court not necessarily going to have the ultimate spacing at the college level where teams are allowed to play zone. And, you know, there's uh, all different things that coaches are allowed to do compared to the NBA where they will be more space. So maybe he will attack with, you know, just the more space, but uh, I can't say I don't have any concerns about the mentality and the shot selection and how that affects him going forward. And at the end of the day, even if he doesn't fix that, I still think he's going to be an all-star player. To his credit, though, I mean, you talked about the passing ability and what that can do to bend the defense. Like, he did take advantage of Mark Williams in the dunker spot more often yeah. than not. Like, to his credit. Like, he did end up making the right basketball play, even if it wasn't the aggressive one that we always wanted to see. He's a willing passer. He's a willing yeah. passer. And, I mean, like, I, I, it was almost comical watching Syracuse trot out their zone <laughs> against him. Because, like, he's going to – he's just living at, at the nail – and yep. giving like Mark Williams little dump, like easy alley-oop dump offs. Yep. And when they overplay that, it's just like, Oh, so you're going to let me shoot free throw line jumpers. And like, Oh, I can shoot open catch and shoot threes. Uh, but he always, he does tend to make the right play as a passer. It's not a, a question of him, like forcing shots, like out of the flow of the offense. It's for me, like, can he get a better shot than he's taking? And that's something I'm just going to, I'm just going to have concerned about where I I'm a little bit higher than definitely not everybody. Cause some people have him number one. And I would assume that if you have him number one, you either think that he's going to be a all time offensive player, or you think that he's a little bit better defensively than people are giving him credit for. I've seen him on tape and on film. I watched him twice live this year up close, uh, just in golf, just in golf, like, guards switch on to point guards switch on to you know shifty guys and 
move with him stride for stride, slide his feet, switch his stance, you know, lead him into the help. So I know he's capable of it. I have no concerns whether or not he is going to be a multi-position defender or whether he has the capability uh, of doing it. Where I do have the concerns, and again, we were just talking about it, is he always going to consistently bring the effort to do it? Now, you can make the excuse that you have Mark Williams backing you up. You can afford to um, get a little lazy on that end because you know you have one of the best uh, rim intimidators in the entire college basketball landscape there waiting to clean it up. So I I think that's just human, you know, instinct at that point to, to just, I, Hey, I got to carry the load offensively. I know I got Mark behind me. I know he's got my back. Unfortunately, NBA players are going to make you pay a little bit more than the guys on Virginia tech. So I think that just the effort for me on that end consistently enough. And I don't think I'm high on the fact that that's something he's going to ultimately turn into. I don't think this is a Ben Simmons situation where all of a sudden he's like, I want to be the best defender in the NBA. No, I, I think there's definitely going to have to be some habits coached out of him. Like we, you talked about the funneling and like, it's one thing if that's the scheme because you have Mark Williams, but like there were times where he would want to play that style of defense when Mark Williams wasn't even anywhere close to the basket. Like Mark Williams would be helping on somebody in the corner on a rotation and Powell, there'd be nobody man in the paint. And Powell would still kind of play that funnel style of defense. I think more so because it's Powell's mentality to try and make a play on the ball versus actually do the right thing on defense. He probably, he probably does get a little bored out there. Like for all the talent he has, that's probably a fair thing to say. Sometimes he gets a little bored on defense. He wants to bring the excitement versus always, you know, doing the right thing or maybe just sitting back and waiting for somebody to come to him. But I, that, that's what's going to have to be coached out of him a little bit. Can that happen? I think absolutely. And I don't, I don't think it's more so an ability. Like I said, I don't think he's that slow out there. And to your point, you talked about it perfectly. He can keep up with guys. And sometimes even playing defense, when you're that big and you're that strong and you can kind of just play up on guys and make it hard for somebody else to hit a shot over you, like Tobias Harris does for my Philadelphia 76ers, like there's enough value in that too. And like Tobias Harris in the playoffs, he played his ass off on defense just by giving effort and competing on the ball. And I think Paolo can do all of the same things. Is he going to be an all world? I want him switching everywhere. He's going to contain every single point guard matchup. Like, no, but like how many of these guys actually are, how many guys in the league can actually like get up on somebody and guard every single other player one-on-one, maybe what, like 10 to 15 guys at absolute maximum. You just have to be willing to do the little things, play within the scheme that your team wants to play and give enough hustle and compete. And I think Paolo can do all those things. I know he's capable of it. I know he's capable of yep. it. Um, but yeah, if he could beat Tobias Harris defensively, great. Tobias, uh, you know, you're, you're, he's not going to make an all-defensive team. Um, and I'll never say a bad word about him because he's a Long Island legend. Uh, so, you know, he's a hometown guy. Um, now, what do you think about him off the ball? Do you think he's like, I mean, he averaged a block a game. And Mark Williams was gobbling up a lot of them. It, part of me feels like, you know, he could probably do that in the league too. Like, similar to Jabari, who average like a block a game you look at the number and you're like ah, maybe a little overwhelming for guys of that size until you realize that you know the scheme of the defense is to funnel guys into the massive you know some in jabari's case historical shot blocker behind you so i i don't know i i think that he could be a help side guy i think that when he's like paying attention he he's capable of making the right rotations i thought he was pretty good and like i think he's got a high like basketball feel. I do. I think that he reads the game well on both ends, but again, off ball defense 
it's about like, do you want to do it consistently? Are you going to communicate? And it's, it's like, I'd rather him be a locked in off ball defender than like some on the ball stopper. I think that's going to be more important for him because on the ball, he's so big and massive that just his size alone will be enough. But I want to know, all right, maybe you sometimes get beat one-on-one, but Hey, are you at least going to make the right rotations? Cause can, can you imagine the college mentality Paulo that we see playing and making the rotations that the Celtics have been making in throughout this playoffs? Like I'm not there yet, you know? And I wonder like, does like, is that going to prevent him from becoming the, the quote unquote, like being billed as a winning player, quote unquote, because he's not always locked in on doing that. Yeah, but how many young guys when they come into the NBA really are good at off-ball defense? Like when you said the word communication, that was that was Coach Corey talking, and that no, was you one hundred percent nailing that point right on the head. It's about communication. It's about teamwork. That, as as our good friend Tyler Rucker would say, sometimes it just takes time. And I yeah. think that aspect of defense definitely does. The reason why the Boston Celtics are as good as they are defensively, it's not just because they're all big and strong. It's because they've all been playing together for years and years and years, and they've learned how to communicate with one another. They've learned, you know, what everyone's good at, what everyone isn't good at, and that helps them make those rotations. That helps them know when they need to be the help. And Paolo going to a young team like the Houston Rockets, like it's not going to look good defensively right out of the gate. might not look good defensively for a few years, but I think that's more so the communication and the teamwork and the chemistry aspect of it versus – is Paolo actually smart enough to recognize what's going on at the court? We know he is. We know he's physically capable of playing defense and helping and, and blocking shots from the weak side and doing those things. It's about everything else that comes along with just the chemistry that needs to be developed to actually play good NBA defense. Yeah. So what team in the top three? Because, you know, I've been beating the drum. Like, I think the draft is unpredictable. I think we think yeah. we know what's going to happen in the top three. And every year we tip last year, it did go the way we thought it was going to go in the top three, but then at four, it got, you know, switched up because last year it was seemingly a four player draft being talked about and things got thrown off with the Raptors. Um, so I'm not going to assume, although I would bet on him going to Houston, but what team in the top three does Paulo give the best ROI on? <sighs> I think we already talked about it. I think I would still say Orlando. I just really like him. I just really like him playing off of everybody else and helping to make those guys better. And in turn, they have so many other guys. Like you think about a starting line that they could try it out that you listed earlier. Marco Fultz, Suggs, Carter, Franz, and Paolo. That's all the defense you need to cover up any potential holes in Paolo's game, at least very early on in his career. That's so much size at every position. Like the smallest guy in the court is what? Or what? Suggs and Fultz. But Suggs, I mean, we know he's built like a linebacker, and Markel Fultz has the 6'10 wingspan to help make up for not being as tall as some of the other other guards. And then Wendell Carter, he's a big boy. Franz Wagner's a bigger wing at 6'8. And then you have Paolo, who's your foreman at, at, at 6'10 and a half without shoes now, apparently, as, as we talked about the report. So the size, the offensive versatility, the defense, I just think that would be an excellent match for him. I'm not knocking the Houston fit, and I wouldn't knock the Oklahoma City fit either. I think Paolo can fit with any of those teams. But I just think what Paolo can bring on offense for all the reasons that we laid out is exactly what that Orlando team needs. And they have a roster that can be 
built well enough around him to make up for what he's not getting on the defense. Man, I just think that that marriage is what I would love to see, but it, it probably won't happen, but that that's okay. It probably won't. Um, man, I don't know. I, part of me is really intrigued by his fit in OKC. Like for a lot of the, like playing with shy, playing with Trey man, playing with Giddy is really interesting. It's weird, but like, I think there's enough shooting with SGA and Trey man to that. You could play Giddy and Paulo together, seeing him with like a, another big initiator like that could be interesting. That ball would just keep moving, man. It's uh, it, it, it could be really fun. And then I do think that him and Jalen green is a legitimate, like deep playoff run set of building blocks to start your team with. And yeah. I think that it's going to be like, those are the only two guys that you say for sure are on that team. And in a lot of ways, I actually think that is better because you can, you don't have to talk yourself into like, well, Markel Fultz is going to work with him. Like you, you would talk like, do you think it can, do I think it could work? I do think it could work, but it's easier to talk yourself into it when the player's already there. When you don't have all of that other talent, like, to me, I can already see, like, you got to move off Kevin Porter Jr., which I thought you'd have to do even without whoever they draft this year. You're probably going to move off Shen Goon uh, in this scenario, and that's fine. Uh, maybe you keep Josh Christopher, but, you know, he's not, like, a, a definite yes. But there's such a blank slate that it's like, all right, probably going to suck again. You get another great pick, and then you can yeah. start filling in on the margins in really creative ways. They have other picks in this draft that you can, you know, base on – uh, as like complimentary guys, it's going to be, I, I think ultimately I would lean Houston is his best case scenario here, but it's, they have, they, they have all the future picks. They have the guy in Jalen Green that you talked about. They're going to like two years from now, they're going to have the cap space that they need to work with. Like they're in a position to, as you said, build a team around Jalen Green and Paolo Bencaro. Not every team who could be in this position to get somebody like him is always in the future position moving forward to actually say that they have all of the mechanisms in place to be able to do whatever they need to to put the right pieces around those two guys. Houston be able to do that. Yeah, for sure. All right, if you're buying stock in Paolo Bencaro, and uh, I didn't tell you to come up with comps beforehand, but we're late <laughs> in the process, so I'm sure you've got some. So if you're buying stock in Paul Boncaro, who may you have bought stock in previously? Oh God, all all of those comparisons, those shades of that we've thrown out. Shout, shout out to the draft guide. All those things that we've done, the Julius Randle, the Blake Griffin, and the Carmelo Anthony. Those shades of that's that's a very perfect mixture. The Julius Randle because of the powerful guy at his size, getting downhill. The Blake Griffin for the secondary, the ancillary playmaking, and that's kind of the role I, I see him envisioning as like a three-point shooter as well, not a volume guy, but hitting enough to bring the defense out. And then Carmelo Anthony for all the stuff that you talked about in the second jump, the offensive rebounding, but the mid-post game, the fadeaway game, the face-up game, that's a really, really fun mix of guys to be talking about. And even though they're not perfect comps one-to-one, -one, when you throw all three of those shades up in a blender and that's how you start picturing Paolo Carroll's game, I don't really see any one of those being like a bad comp and that you can't see how some of those skills that I laid out would translate to the NBA. So I think that mixture of players is really, really fun. And how many guys have we seen come into the league who we can say that 
those things actually make sense to apply. Because like the Carmelo Anthony was like an all-time great. Blake Griffin also an all-time great one when he was healthy. Julius Randle not an all-time great, but like a yeah. really good all-star level player in the NBA. Like yeah. to actually be able to say those things about Paolo Macaro is pretty special to you. Yeah, all of those guys. You know, our friend Norn Rad in the chat, um, watching live on YouTube. Julius Randle, Jason Tatum hybrid. Like I see the Tatum in him too. You know, like I see. And I think what's interesting about Paulo is like, we mentioned Blake Griffin. We mentioned Mello. We mentioned Tatum. We mentioned Randall. And the worst guy out of that bunch is Julius Randall. And it's almost like, is that Paulo's floor? An all-star. An all-star in the NBA. An all-star in the NBA is Paulo's floor. Like that's pretty fucking good. You know, like, again, who knows? Maybe Paulo just decides to not give one solitary fuck in the NBA and gets caught up in the money and the lifestyle. And, you know, Houston has got a ton of good uh, food down there and he, you know, gets out of shape. I don't know. I'm just theoretically like maybe that happens and he doesn't reach all star level. But man, that is some wild universe where that happens that i just cannot foresee that even at his worst he's not an all-star level player at least one or two years of his career that's why i think we're right to have him in that top two conversation because chet you it's a funny thing and i've heard this talked about on multiple other podcasts and, and media fronts where usually the guys who are the most unique in a draft class generally those are the guys that hit on and they become these stars that like we, we've never seen anything like them and they take that to a whole new level Paolo, we're making all of these safe projections and comps to like at at baseline, we think he's probably going to be an all-star. Yeah. Jabari Smith, there are legitimate low floors that you can throw out for Jabari Smith that we can see that scare the living daylights out of somebody like you and me who would think about taking him with like a top two pick. So I think that's why when you go through an exercise like that, it's much easier to come to the realization that Paolo should be, if not one, certainly second in this class. Yeah. All right, uh, Albert's not here, Nathan. So I'm bestowing uh, this responsibility onto you as the guest. Oh, boy. It's everyone's favorite segment. It's time for you to sell me this pen on Paulo Boncaro. Listen, man. It's very rare that we have a player coming into the draft like we've outlined who can be a number one offensive option the way that Paolo can. The number of ways that we can pick apart that he can get to 25-plus points per game, no other player near the top of this draft can match as many different ways that he can get there on top of, oh, by the way, he might be able to get to a point where he can throw in seven, eight assists per game. How many other guys in this draft class can probably get to 25-plus, seven-plus a game? Throwing in the rebounds, playing adequate defense. I can't think of any other guys. And probably the best point that I can make in a sell me this pen segment is literally what we just got done talking about. The comps for him, the baseline floor is probably an all-star level player. How are we not considering that guy with a potential number one overall pick? I don't know. I'm sold, man. I it's you know, I, I look at Paulo and I think to myself, he should be the guy that I'm picking at number one based on the trends of the NBA, based on his size, his talents. Uh, but he just so happens to be in a year where I think uh, he's... There's another unicorn out there. There's another unicorn out there. Tyler Rucker and I uh, wrote about why we think he's a unicorn, why we think he's the best player in this draft. Um, but, man, 
I can't say I'd be shocked if Paulo ends up the best player in the in the class in a redraft five or ten years from now. All right, Nathan. Uh, thank God you were able to fill in. Um, but again, that's why that's why we got you know the deepest squad in the content space. So tell the people where they could find you on the internet. Uh, they can find me on Twitter at Draft Deeper. That's where I'm at constantly on social media. You can find any work that I do on the Draft Deeper podcast feed, which is available wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and obviously find my writing at nostillingsnba.com. Alex and I just teamed up for an awesome piece where we went back and forth. We had the conversation. Should Jabari Smith be the top overall pick in the NBA draft? I don't think we got to a place where we were souring on his game to the point where we would blame somebody for taking him number one. But as we talked about, we picked a part in the piece. I would invite you to go read it. There are some legitimate questions to be had and plenty of reasons why we would have Cheddar Palo ranked ahead of him. So make sure you read that piece, check it out, and think to yourself, should Jabari Smith actually be the top pick in the NBA draft? And subscribe while you're there because it's free. Absolutely. And you don't have to leave the article. You can subscribe right in the article. Uh, and you'll get a you know, more content delivered to your inbox Monday through Friday, uh, again, for free. Um, so make sure you subscribe to the draft deeper podcast. Uh, there's also a draft deeper YouTube channel. So while you're here on this, if you're watching live on YouTube, head over there, subscribe to that, subscribe to no ceilings, uh, TV, because we have a draft show coming up. Plug it, plug it, Corey. 623, uh, 730 PM. We have a, uh, the no ceilings, 2022 NBA draft show live stream presented by NBA top shot, which, uh, we're all very excited about. We're going to have, um, just, uh, fan questions, analysis, pick reactions, some fun little things when trade breaks and, you know, there are woge bombs. Uh, we're going to, be opening top shot packs live and you know react we could get uh, a number one lebron or something in one of these packs and we might shut down the entire operation if that happens you know what i mean like that that's might a have to. let's let's that's, go cash in on that that's a valuable <laughs> moment or maybe we just you know we could afford to like buy a, a real studio space at that point um so it's gonna be a lot of fun so make sure you are subscribed to no ceilings tv subscribe to the nba draft dude on youtube as well uh, if you haven't yet, subscribe to the Draft Act NBA Draft Podcast. If you're a new listener who's getting psyched about the draft psych, welcome. We're happy to have you. Uh, make sure you check out all the content from the No Ceiling Squad and stay locked in because when this, this cycle ends, it's only going to get crazier in the future. We're only going to push even harder. Uh, we're, we're ready to continue to change the game in the draft content space and beyond. So can, we appreciate can, can I give you, can I give you one more shout out Corey before of we cut this, this podcast on, on the draft deck NBA draft by, I just want to say being able to work with you in those ceilings. We we've said this before. We've said it to each other on those ceilings videos. We've said it on the draft deeper pod, but being able to work with you and Albert and everybody else in those ceilings, seeing what you guys do up close and personal. I've said before we even formed those ceilings. You had one of the most inventive creative ideas with the draft deck NBA draft podcast before we even linked up. Now getting to see your creative process behind the scenes, get to know you personally, see all the YouTube work. I'm glad you shouted out your YouTube channel because you've been some of the most unique pieces of content in the NBA draft space. It's it's mind-blowing that we get to do this together and that we're actually a team. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you for everything you do in the draft space. Hey, you as well. You put in a lot of work behind the scenes yourself. We 
have gone to see multiple games live together to scout in person this year, which was a lot plenty of plenty more to come, plenty more to come. And uh, yeah, we're real excited. And again, everybody, you know, on the entire no ceiling team has been grinding yeah. so damn hard. And to see everybody's support on the draft guide, we didn't even touch on that. Like, you know, I mean, unbelievable, mind blowing. Um, the amount of support that we got and it, it does not go unappreciated. It's okay. Pat yourself on the back for that draft guide. You know, you deserve it. So, well, yeah, I did the, you know, I did the <laughs> designs for it, but uh, everybody contributed. It's not like I wrote the, right. the entire thing. I wrote my pieces. Everybody wrote their pieces and the response was just amazing, you know, and that's why we grind so hard because you guys support us the way that you do. So we're going to continue to, be inventive in the space and push it forward and not just give you the same old tired stuff that yeah. you're used to because things evolve and, and the merch, my giant the- ass merch order is, is, is in the mail on its way. So yes. Uh, and, and we have merch. Uh, you can get that and the draft guide at no ceilings, Uh, and the cool thing about the merch is like the, the whole concept for me was I did not want to make people a walking billboard, yeah. you know, a lot of people. And I think, you know, look, I have a lot of experience before No Ceilings working in the merch space. Uh, you know, I was creative director at a streetwear brand for almost 10 years. I ran merchandising for a successful band. One of the early mistakes that people make when they try to sell their own merch independently is that they're just trying to plaster their logo or whatever on on merch. And it you end up trying to sell people a billboard and you know, people want like to like, you're never going to look at a logo, somebody's logo or very atypically and be like, Oh, yo, where did you get that? That shit is dope. Like, that's not how it works. Like you have to push the boundaries and, you know, give people a reason to think that it's cool outside of the fact that maybe they're attached to the work that you do and they want to support you. So I, you know, the whole concept was like, how do we make this stuff different than what people are doing and make it more like a brand you would find in a store or, you know, like an independent shop rather than like just, you know, the draft deck cover on a t-shirt or the no ceilings podcast cover on a t-shirt, the no ceilings, yeah. lo- you know, very few of that. So we, we, I wanted to push the boundaries a little bit. I'm really excited. A lot of people, you know, you guys copped a lot of shit. So I'm glad that you guys thought it was cool too. And uh, we have a lot of fun ideas with merch, even in the future as well. Best, so. best part about the merch from the rave reviews I've gotten from people I know who have already bought the stuff. The shirts are soft, baby. Go buy those t-shirts. The shirts are they soft. Are. The reviews Ring are spun co- Ring spun cotton. Ring spun cotton. Uh, I apologize to the, the Californians who, for whatever reason, like to wear, you know, cardboard boxes. Uh, <laughs> but but we like comfort. We, we appreciate comfort down <laughs> at no ceilings. So, uh, yeah. If you feel like copping that, that's great. If not, we have a ton of free content for you at, you know, in the No Ceilings Network, and we appreciate it either way. So uh, until next time, big week coming up, y'all. Let's get after it. We're so close. Let's fucking go. We out. Peace. <laughs>